Hi, everyone. This is Food Institute CEO Brian Choi, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we have a bonusized episode for you featuring KHE President and CEO Brandon Barnholt, and we're going to ask him about the state of the natural, organic, and specialty food markets. We're also going to get his thoughts on the pandemic-driven disruptions to consumer behavior, how KHE is innovating amidst the supply chain and labor challenges, and how the current inflationary environment will affect the food industry overall. But before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the Food Institute's newest FI Retail 360 newsletter. This newsletter is delivered weekly, it's free, and it'll provide you with the food retail news and insights you need to know. To sign up, check the link in the description of this episode. With that said, welcome to the show, Brandon. How are you today? Brian, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, so, Brandon, let's get the conversation started with your background. Uh, can you share a little bit about yourself, your career path, and what led you to your current role as CEO of Kehi? Well, I'd start by saying uh, I've been married for 43 years. Wow. Uh, I've got, yeah, <laughs> it's great. I met the right woman early, uh, and uh, we've got a, a wonderful life together. Uh, we've got three grown kids that are married. Uh, we've got seven grandkids. And um, my passions outside of work are snow skiing and water skiing. And so that's a little bit about just kind of who I am. My career path started as I came out of uh, college uh, into an oil company. And, and early in my career, a lot of, uh, you know, leadership development and, you know, distribution, um, sales and marketing kinds of experiences. And then inside the oil companies, I got into the very early days of the convenience store industry back, back when I was... Uh, you know, right out of college, there a lot of people can't believe this, but there wasn't that many convenience stores in the United States. It was a relatively new concept, and and uh, working for oil companies at that time, we were spending you know a lot of time and resources running around the country turning two bay service stations into convenience stores. So I that got me into the food business. I um, was recruited and ended up running a smaller oil company, but running kind of their, their retail side of the business. And, uh, um, I was basically running a convenience store chain. I did that for many, many years. And then as a part of running that chain, I came across this distributor by the name of Kehi that had these really interesting products. I was really jealous of the company and what it did. And, uh, after I got out of the convenience store industry, I had an opportunity to come to Kehi and run the company. I was the first non-family CEO, and I've been in the job about 15 years, and it has been um, a blast. So um, that's that's my career. Great, and tell us a little bit about about Kehi for those you know in the, our audience that not that might not be so familiar with uh, with the company. Yeah, happy to. We're we're a what's known as a specialty, natural and organic and fresh distributor. We we distribute across the United States and Canada to grocery and what is known as the natural store, natural food channel. Uh, we have uh, about sixty or seventy thousand SKUs at any one time, meaning individual items. We do business with about five or six thousand individual manufacturers or brand owners. 
And the products that we distribute beyond their, you know, fun, unique, healthy, interesting aspects are also from a distribution perspective, a little bit harder to source. Um, in some cases, not as fast moving. Um, and so our fit in the industry is that we distribute to grocery chains, even those who have their own distribution system, because these products are just nuanced and they're different in, from a distribution perspective. And then in the, in the natural food business, we're basically the primary distributor into those stores. Um, so that's more or less kind of the product types and what we do and why we exist. Uh, Kahi is owned by primarily by its employees. About 90% of the equity of the company is owned in an ESOP, uh, which is awesome because, um, you know, the, the retirement uh, account of each of our employees uh, is, is contributed by the, you know, the equity of the company and the better the company performs, the, the better everyone's retirement uh, account is. So it's a, it's a win-win for the company and the employee creates a really strong culture and, and uh, uh, you know, really good retention and, and just a, you know, a focus on expense control and efficiency and the things that you would want employees to pay attention to. And they do because in, in, in our case, it's actually their equity, their, their retirement. So that's a great aspect. We're also what's known as a B Corp. Um, and, the B Corp movement started, you know, more than a decade ago. Um, we're one of the larger companies that's a B Corp, as I understand it. Um, and uh, the easiest way to say what that stands for is that in your bylaws of your incorporation, you actually change to include that you're not only worried about shareholders, but you're worried about the community around you, the uh, the earth, the planet that we live on, and and your employees. So it's, it's about how you care for um, all those that are involved, all your stakeholders, not just shareholders. So it's an important part of our, of our culture as well. Great. Very interesting. Um, and Brandon, you've seen the growth of the natural and organic products movement over the past 15, 20 years, both within KE, but also within the overall food and beverage industry. Um, at the risk of sounding too basic here. Uh, I'd love to ask your your opinion. What's really driving the growth of natural, organic specialty in the fresh food industry? Yeah, I think at the core, you'd have to say that there was a day a couple of decades um, ago that you know that uh, the organic food part of our industry was a movement. It was. It was relatively small and it was about the ingredients and, and how you grow the product. Products tended to be harder to find. Um, you know, they were usually very specialized stores that were involved in selling it. And the consumers were a very unique group that, for whatever reason, sometimes health, sometimes just a belief around what we should put in our bodies, that, that that's really how the organic movement started. Especially is more um, international and ethnic, various flavors and things, uh, products that people would know from maybe their travels or reading and so forth. And then we also um, are involved around the perimeter of the store in you know all the departments that we call fresh, but they could be refrigerated or frozen. 
the growth, I think, in, in our part of the industry and all those products would first start by just saying that um, we've, we've moved to a point where, you know, it's, it's no longer a hunt to find organic. There's an organic opportunity available in everything. And, um, and it's become, I think, you know, uh, quite available at all types of retail formats, traditional grocery stores, uh, you know, Costco club, club type stores, and, and of course, all the independent uh, natural and organic and, and groceries across the country. So at one level, it's just become much more available, much more mainstream, and that creates, you know, its own, mo own momentum for growth. Um, the desire to eat healthy, the desire for clean ingredients, uh, for understanding where the product is grown and how it's grown, for maybe the, the story behind the brand and what they, you know, what they contribute to and might, might do with their uh, profits. Uh, those are all things that people care about uh, today. So it's, there's a number of reasons why you know, the consumer is looking for all these products and and that that just continues to fuel growth at the retail level yeah very interesting um and kehi uh, as an organization your your company has been able to capture so much of the of the market share over the past 15 years and and so i'm just curious to hear you know you've been ceo you know 15 plus years so yep. how have you been able to garner so much market share within such a short period of time like what are i get what what was kehi's differentiator over the the past 15 years that it enabled you to be the leader in in natural foods yeah well let's let's start with just the fact that we've been lucky and uh you know it's it's a set of uh, products and and trends that are you know that are really moving ahead and we've been in the right place at the right time you can you can never uh, ignore the fact that you know luck has something to do with with any good fortune. But I think your question really um, would be answered by first off explaining that we've had three pretty significant acquisitions that position Kehi uh, across uh, again both the U.S. and Canada to be really well positioned to be able to serve retailers and, and vendors in, in this area. Um, about 12 years ago, we acquired the Tree of Life company that gave us a national distribution footprint. It gave us a Canadian subsidiary, which is really a great company up in Canada by the name of Tree of Life and, uh, and, and really got us heavier, deeper into the natural and organic side of the business. We then needed more of a West Coast presence. Uh, there was a distributor by the name of Nature's Best that we were able to acquire and with Nature's Best, not only did we get the West Coast and a deeper, richer capability in natural and organic, but we were able to attract a, a very significant retailer as a customer, and that's Sprouts. Now, there's many, many others, but Sprouts was, you know, one of the bigger customers. And so that's been a great part of why we've grown. And, um, and then finally, a very small um, distributor around the fresh uh, perimeter departments by the name of Monterey Provisions out of San Diego. We acquired that. And if you put all that together with what Cahey's already uh, great expertise was, and particularly in, in specialty, um, we just have all three of these major categories covered. We've got, you know, great distribution footprint and, uh, 
and we've been able to build on that. Uh, the second thing I would say is our approach to the business, we think, is somewhat unique, and that is we believe that uh, fundamentally what we're here to do is help retailers understand the categories that we operate in um, with uh, great data and analytics that help them understand what's happening with the consumer um, and with um, a continual flow of innovation across all the product categories. Innovation is really at the key and the core of everything that we do and our retailers come to expect it. So if, we, if we've got the right data, if we're encouraging retailers to carry the right products and we continue to innovate, then there's, you know, there's a great pipeline there. But just as importantly, we understand that we're a pathway to the marketplace for manufacturers. And so we have an attitude as a company and a belief that we that our other partner uh, equally as important in this business are, are all the manufacturers. Many have great ideas and great products, but don't understand the market, don't, don't know how to get into the market, or um, said in another way, just simply couldn't get to the retail shelf without distributors like us. And we take that side of the equation, you know, equally as serious. And so I would say that, you know, that that's a, a big driving engine for why we've, you know, we've been able to grow is attention to both of those details for retailers and for our manufacturer partners. Great, great answer, Brendan. Um, <laughs> so shifting gears here a little bit to, to the retailer part of the, the equation, um, as a provider to a lot of the, you know, to a lot of these retailers, what changes have you seen in the retail setting, especially over the past 24 months since the pandemic started? Um, what's been working in the retail setting? What, and also what has not been working in the retail setting, you know, from where you sit uh, at KE? Well, I'm on record, um, you know, for a long, long time of being a big believer in, in our retail food network across you know, North America, I, I believe that uh, these companies and the people involved in them are, are some of the best businesses in America and, and in Canada. They're very involved in their communities. They love their customers um, and they're very, very innovative. So I, I've, I'm on record as saying that brick and mortar and food will never, ever go away. And I think it continues to, you know, show really robust uh, sales and, and growth. So um, I just, you know, I'd start by just saying that I think uh, in general, retailers in, in the food category um, have, have continually innovated and met the needs of the consumer, which generally speaking means that they have moved to fresher and, you know, more um, table ready uh, foods. They've been doing that for a long time. It accelerated during uh, the pandemic, and I believe it, you know, continues to be a big part of the future. Um, the other thing uh, that I would, you know, call out in terms of the pandemic is obviously we were all home. And so there was a lot more need for everyone and desire by the consumer to have things, you know, available and maybe delivered at home. Um, across the food retail landscape, companies large and small their digital expertise, you know, jumped forward probably, you know, five to 10 years in terms of its capability. Now, I don't believe that 
there's a massive shift to e-com and food that's going to stay forever. In fact, it's already backing down as, as the world has reopened. But if you were to say what was a major change caused by the pandemic, I would say it was more about digital than it was necessarily about product uh, for most retailers. So their, their apps are better. Their curbside, you know, click and collect is better. Just everything about dealing with the consumer digitally, um, you know, had to advance. And like our retail community does all the time, they met the need. They stepped up to it and, and did it in a, in a big, big way. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to, to ask you how the relationship has has evolved between, you know, the, the, the distributor and the retailer, right? So retailers have had to invest a significant amount of capital, you know, for these upgrades to get into the digital world. Has there been pushback on, on pricing or, um, you know, uh, as a provider of these products, has there been, has the dynamic pivoted a little bit over the past 24 months? No, I'd say if anything, it's, it's, uh, it's just strengthened the relationships because the supply chain, you know, in all goods across, frankly, across the whole world. But if we just narrow down to specifically food in the United States, the supply chain has been very, very challenging. And so our relationship with our retailers had to become more and more of a partnership, more and more relying on each other, the better the data that we could pass back and forth to each other, you know, the better it was for everyone, you know, the supply chain in general, um, is, is when it's optimized is one big algorithm. And so the, the more that everybody's algorithm is fine tuned and it, by the way, it wasn't at all during the pandemic because of so much change, you know, the better it is. And so, um, I would say you, you mentioned pricing and we can talk about pricing, I think is a separate issue and maybe as a part of inflation, but there has been particularly in the last year, an incredible amount of price increases. And the only thing we can do and have ever done is to, is to be a great conduit of information and be transparent, right? We, we, we communicate with our vendors what it's going to take to, to take price increases. And we communicate with our retailers that it's happening. And in both directions, we've got periods of time that have to be met so that everybody can react. And, and all of that has been in hyperdrive. Um, during not just the pandemic, but particularly the last year with the impacts of, you know, inflation across, across the food categories. Got it. Interesting. Um, I wanted to ask your, uh, ask you a question about your thoughts on the quote, new consumer. There's been a lot of studies. A lot of people have a ton of different opinions on how the consumer has changed over the past 24 months. What are your thoughts? You know, what, what behavior patterns are going to stick? What uh, behavior patterns are going to go back to pre-pandemic norms? Can you share, shed some light into your thoughts there? Sure. Uh, you know, in my case, I have to start by saying I've been steadfast throughout the pandemic to um, avoid using the term new normal. Everyone every day is trying to say, you know, this is the new normal. And frankly, people were trying to say that, you know, a month into the pandemic. And, and uh, so I've been 
uh, you know, pretty uh, rigid, uh, at least in, in the universe where I have influence to say, this is not the new normal. We were in COVID hot. We were in COVID normal. We're into a next normal of some kind, but we're not into a new normal. Nothing is settled. Things are evolving quickly and, and uh, we're coming out of, you know, a, hopefully a once in a lifetime mm-hmm. um, experience for all of us. And no one knows exactly where this is going to go. So I'd start there. Um, we certainly saw consumers shift their demand, you know, based on the limitations that were put on all of us, which was, you know, complete lockdown, stay at home, and then all the choices that everybody made along the way, which which caused us to, you know, to, to live differently and to shop differently, and frankly, then to begin to eat differently. Um, e-com certainly was a benefactor in, in every way, uh, including food. I, as I said just a minute ago, I think that's, that's going to strengthen everybody's digital capability, and I think consumers um, will order more food online and in some e-com way more than they would have 24 months ago. And I think there's a piece of that that will stick. But what I'd also say is, you know, make no mistake, we have a uh, very basic connection with our food. And as human beings, we love to go to the grocery store. We love to go to market and we love to, to get all the senses working. And, um, and it's, it's just part of what we do. And I, I personally believe that will always be the case. And so there isn't, in my mind, a new consumer. There's a consumer that has shifted and will continue to try to understand how they want to live and how they're going to eat and how they're going to shop. But it's always going to be primarily brick and mortar and food. Last thing I would say is people, um, began to cook in some cases for the first time ever um, and learned that they didn't know how to cook. Um, Other people went back to the kitchen and remembered how much they enjoy cooking. And so that was a great trend uh, across all kinds of food products and the way that people, uh, you know, were eating. Um, But um, all things at home, meals, uh, snacking, indulgence, all of those, uh, you know, saw great, increase in demand through the pandemic. And then the last thing, and just in terms of like, what else did we see during the 24 months is um, everything plant-based just exploded. And particularly in the dairy, Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, what I would call quote unquote cow's milk anymore. The dairy is filled with all kinds of plant-based products that are, you know, there are milks and yogurts and cheeses and that that's, that's relatively new and really, really took hold uh, during the pandemic. So long-winded answer. I don't think there's a new consumer. Um, I think there's a consumer that ha- has always and always will love food and they got reconnected or connected in new ways over the last 24 months. Great. Um, Brandon, you wrote an open letter in the fall of 2021, which highlighted some of the key areas where you've defined, as you say, this next normal. Um, I'd like to touch upon these areas and see if there's been any updates or changes to your view now that we're in Q2 2022. So let's start off with supply chain and product availability. Um, 
has there been improvement both in terms of product movement and availability since Q3 2021? Well, there has. Um, let, me, let me just start by going back and saying that, you know, if you think about what happened across the world in, in general, we had, a, we had a significant change in consumer demand um, as a result, as I said a minute ago, and as we all know from lockdowns and, and just a personal choice, perhaps, to stay home more. It caused all of our discretionary income to be spent on durable goods instead of on services. You know, we stopped traveling, we stopped eating out, all the all the dollars that would normally flow into services, you know, flowed into things that, you know, are at home. And uh, uh, how many of us did some kind of a remodel? How many bought new furniture? How many bought a dog? You know, all those kinds of things because we had the discretionary income available. The dollars were there. Um, so demand in terms of total demand of dollars available, in my opinion, didn't change, particularly with the government subsidies, but what we were buying changed fundamentally. And, and the reason I start there is because on your supply chain question, you know, that, that just wreaks havoc on, on the supply chains in every way, because nobody's algorithm was planning on that and, and nobody could keep up with it. And and, and as we rolled through the pandemic and began to really experience more and more supply chain difficulty. What we were really seeing is not only a, you know, a, a lack or a shortage of, of the raw ingredients and materials that it took, but we were really beginning to see a labor shortage. So um, we're still there and, and we're going to talk about labor, but um, in terms of supply chain, um, there, there was a, a, a very small, but incremental improvement taking place in food, at least in all of our food categories, all across the pandemic. And we were really hopeful um, in the late part of 21 that we were really on the way, you know, to a full recovery and that this thing was going to settle in and we'd, you know, we'd have our supply chain back. And then we hit Omicron and coming out of the holidays, um, it had never been worse. And uh, most most employers that I've talked to will tell you that they had more uh, positive Omicron case folks out of work than during any other time in the pandemic. In fact, by a large, large measure uh, more. And so again, it blew up. It blew up retail and the ability to you know have enough employees to get the work done. It, and it blew up manufacturing and distribution and drivers and transportation and so forth. And it was just a lack of people, lack of workers. So that set us back. Um, we, we didn't see the incremental improvement. In fact, we saw a decline in all, you know, all types of uh, food and, and frankly, our own capability to do the work we needed to do. But with that behind us, and particularly as quickly as COVID has started now to completely back away, we, as an example, as a company, don't have any positive cases across our company. And that, you know, that's awesome to say, but it, it took us a full 20, 24 plus months to, to say that. So um, we're incrementally as an industry and we're incrementally inside of KE seeing better and better fill rates. Um, and, uh, you know, really encouraged that this thing's going to get all the way back. Last thing I would say is it's also important to say, though, that 
or to recognize that retailers, just like everybody else, were were in some cases, these would be my words, were sort of on their heels. Um, they were dealing with, a, you know, a very changing environment and employee safety and all the things and trying to serve the customer. But because of that, you didn't see nearly as much activity or even the ability by retailers to look at their categories and refresh and renew, to look for innovation and to do all the things that they normally do and that we help them do. So there was a slowdown in that. And I bring that up in supply chain because that has a lot to do with what's available and how do we introduce new and so forth. So there, there's, there's, you know, there's been big disruption. Big, the disruption is starting to settle uh, every week, every month as we go forward. We we believe it'll just get better and better. Would you say that we're eighty percent um, towards full recovery? If you, if I would have ask you for a number there, what would you say where things stand today? I think 80 is a pretty good number. Um, you know, mathematically, the, you know, the fill rates that we see coming into our company from all of our manufacturers is still much lower than we have ever experienced pre-pandemic, but it's probably about 80% of the way or a little bit higher back and it's improving. And then our own ability to, you know, to have enough inventory and produce an order that is has a fill rate in it that we're really proud of is also at least 80% back, if not a little bit higher. And that's improving every day. The one thing to remember in all that, in, in our case as a distributor in relationship with our retailers is, well, if, you're, if, if one company is having trouble producing and you're short of those goods, then just replace it. And we, we do a lot of that and we recognize that the retailers do that. And that's part of what you would normally would have seen. But as I said earlier, the retailers didn't have the bandwidth to do a lot of that. And so all of us were, were living with situations where manufacturers who had really long-term production problems and were not going to be able to supply, you couldn't, you couldn't move to improve that um, like you normally would. That will change and then as we go forward. Retailers will have more bandwidth. We'll have more bandwidth. Hopefully, all the manufacturers will come all the way back and, and you know, be able to produce everything uh, at you know, full capability. But if, if they don't, then it's our job and a retailer's job to, you know, to have something on the, on the shelf that will sell. Right. You mentioned in your open letter about how Kehi is implementing new brands right so um given the supply chain disrupt you know disruptions how has that process been you know since you know you're, you're you introduced 5,000 10,000 new SKUs it, it must be tremendously difficult to manage that um bringing on new manufacturers and and dealing with all the all the challenges related to to supply chain. So how how are you managing through that? Um, and especially as the as the supply chain improves with some of the bigger manufacturers, what's going to happen to the new onboarded products that you know might not find a shelf space? You know, at these retails, I'm just curious to get your views on that. Yeah, remember that as a as a distributor of these types of products, we're, we're really built 
for innovation, right? We we are we are um, really uh, good at finding, um, sourcing, and running through the supply chain with you know with small new innovative manufacturers and their products. So the pandemic pandemic didn't do anything to hurt that. We we continued to be you know really capable of that all the way through. We didn't see a huge slowdown in innovation. Um, we saw we we brought in fifteen thousand new individual items during you know that that period of time, and you know hundreds and hundreds of new vendor partners. So that part didn't slow down. As I said, retailers had a little bit harder time, you know, fully being on their toes as much and, and being able to implement. And so I do believe that'll be an area that will 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 increase and pick up as we move forward and return more to a, you know, a state that we were used to where retailers can be really nimble and can move quickly. Um, but I think innovation, you know, it's safe to say it continued all the way through the pandemic. One other thing I would say that was a big surprise to us is that we thought that the smaller manufacturers and brand owners who relied on third parties for their manufacturing would really take a beating during the you know, the COVID period, but they did not at all. Um, in fact, for the most part, our best fill rates came from all of our small brands. Wow. It was the larger companies that had to make decisions on their, you know, production lines when, when one particular product, you know, really took off and had demand that was, you know, two, three, four times normal, all of a sudden they would stop producing other things. And I understand why they did it. Um, probably would have made the same types of decisions, but the impact on us was we saw the larger companies have more filling fill rate problems. And we saw the smaller companies, you know, really be able to be nimble and, and their co-packers did a great job. I think as a, you know, just sort of an industry that's invisible out there, the, the co-packing part of the food world really stood tall um, during COVID. Very interesting. Very counterintuitive as well, you know, but uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's great to hear. Um, I did want to touch upon labor, you know, labors. It, it seems like every day there's a new article on labor and how challenging labor has been. Um, and so how has Kehi managed through this quote, great resignation and also employee retention? Like how, uh, what what has it been like inside Kehi? Yeah, I can't talk about it without breaking it into two distinct, you know, types of employees. Right, the the employees that are that are in offices or, you know, are administrative in nature or professional in nature in some way, and generally are working out of an office. With that population of people, we like everybody had to be really flexible. Uh, we had to we had to over communicate. We're, our our lines of communications, our style of communication, our frequency of communication, um, much greater and made us better in all those ways. Uh, Zoom and Teams and you know uh, town hall calls that included you know hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of people on a on a Zoom call. All those things um, became very important. You had people that were uncertain. You had people that were uh, more isolated than they'd ever been. You had people that were fearful. Um, you know, all those things were at work. And so that 
that population of people, I would say flexibility and communications really mattered. And it continues today, even though we're reopened, um, people are still working their way through this emotionally and, you know, and socially and so forth. And so we've continued to take a posture of being as flexible as we can be, um, as understanding as we can be, and, and, you know, to try to continue to communicate, help people, you know, work their way through it. So in terms of the great resignation and, and people in those ranks uh, changing jobs and looking for new and so forth, we, we haven't experienced a great deal of that. And I think it's because of, you know, our posture, because of an ESOP, um, all the reasons that we think a, a really unique culture that would make people want to, you know, stick around. Um, and then there's the front line, um, the people that were in the stores, uh, in our case, the drivers and the warehouse people. Um, and we've seen a massive shortage in the availability of labor like everybody. I don't think we solved this problem and can, I can't, I can't brag about, you know, being better than the rest of the, the world in this regard. But I would tell you that it made us better. And um, we use, we use uh, digital capabilities better than ever. People can apply for a job, get feedback right away, and maybe even be in the job within, you know, hours or days. That's, that's a big improvement. We, we know today for sure that, that scheduling is a very important part of how these people are deciding where they want to work. Um, so we've adapted in every way we can to try to tighten that up and make scheduling as friendly as possible. Pay obviously is always important to people you can't get behind. And that, that market was escalating on a, almost a daily, if not weekly basis, and probably still continues to be there. So we, it, listen, it's been a challenge. We, we fought it. We continue to, you know, fight, um, just being able to find great employees that want to work, you know, in the distribution space. I think the last thing to say is remember also that all of us um, were getting everything delivered to our door. Um, and that was a massive change because of the pandemic. And so there was a tremendous amount of worker, you know, uh, workforce needs, labor needs to fill that need. And so Amazon and UPS and FedEx and every other company involved in, in bringing people their goods to their door, their, their home, um, that, that attracted a tremendous amount of employees and, mm -hmm. uh, and that made it harder for the rest of us. So there was just a higher demand for, for people than there was available, you know, workers starting to see it settle down. Um, we, we certainly in, in our own way and with our own metrics are you know, are not happy with where we are, but um, it's getting better every day. Got it. Yeah, that's you make a great comment. How the workforce has really shifted towards the 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 Amazons, the Uber Eats. I live in New York City, and so you know a lot of workers, especially not, you know from the restaurant space, they've moved over to become Uber drivers, right? Yes. And they like the flexibility, and you know, pay is for the most part, if they do it full time, it's actually higher than, you know, working in a restaurant setting. So I would imagine it's, it's somewhat similar um, to what you're, what you're seeing in the warehouse and, and, and distribution space as well. So um, do you, do you see this getting back to normal in tw 12 months? 
on the labor side, on the, on the warehousing or what's kind of your forecast there? Yeah, our, I would say that our forecast says, um, and our numbers say that uh, we are, we are able to find, uh, uh, an ample number of workers. And the question is, is will those people stay, right? Will they come in? Will they like the job? Will they like the schedule? Will they stick around? And that, that was the biggest problem during the pandemic is, is everybody was moving around. Everybody was looking for the next, whatever, everybody was trying new, new types of jobs, the digital part of the economy that you talked about with uh, Uber drivers and, and so forth. Um, but it's certainly better. Um, and our prediction would be that we're just going to see a steady climb out of here every week, every month, and without any other major disruption um, like we've lived through. I would say that in 12 months, we'll see numbers, employment and turnover numbers that are as good or better than pre-pandemic. The last part of my question is related to inflation. As a country, we haven't experienced 5 percent inflation, especially when we look back over the past 30 to 40 years. Will inflation be transitory, or are we looking into a longer-term inflationary cycle? We will be okay. We live in a great country and a great economy, and the economy will survive and, and it'll rebound. But I, I do want to say, I mean, this was never transitory. Um, I don't even know what that word means, but the, you know, the Fed was calling it transitory. It was never transitory. It's really fundamental. It's across our economy. Um, as we've talked about, massive labor dislocation, supply chains that are completely disrupted. And so I believe, um, as, as has been written about and talked about you know, quite a bit, I, I do believe that the Fed has a job on its hands that's really, really complicated and one that they've never seen exactly and with all the fundamentals that are in place right now. And I think it's going to be really hard for our, you know, the, the Fed to um, create a soft landing. And what that means is, can they bring the, the inflation numbers back down to, you know, very low single digits and not create a recession? And the way that they do that is a tighten money supply. And that gets done through the primary mechanism of increasing the, you know, the rate at which banks borrow, the, the Fed rate. Um, we're hearing about, you know, multiple increases that are headed our way. And I think it'll be three to four percentage uh, points of increase, which will, you know, roll through and start to slow down the economy. The question is, can they do that well enough and carefully enough to, you know, as I said, to do that in a way that doesn't create recession. These exact fundamentals have never been here. The Fed hasn't seen it like this. We do have a Federal Reserve chairman and, and general tone that I believe, for those that are close to it, uh, tell me um, they don't want to see a recession. That's a, key, that's a key element here because there's been times in the past, as an example under Paul Volcker, where he knew that we needed a recession to be able to bring inflation back into, into check. So that's a lot of technical garbage, but you know, we're, we're going to get through it. We may see some recessionary kinds of environments, but inflation has to be brought back down to, to lower levels. And I can just tell you in the food business and in our business in, in specifically, we've never seen a 
price increase environment like we've been through in the last 12 months and it accelerated and the amount of increases and so forth that we saw that we had to pass through that retailers had to take to the shelf and so forth. I've never seen anything like it and it is not done. And in my conversations with most manufacturers, most of them, if not all of them are telling me they have not been able to keep up. Mm. In other words, the price increases that they've taken or multiple price increases that they've taken with percentages of increase like they never dreamed of, they're not, they're not even yet. So it tells me that there's still more coming and, it, and you know, we're going to continue for a while here to see food inflation. Um, I do think it'll settle when the labor market settles, when the supply chain, you know, settles down, when all of those fundamentals get back to something approaching normal or more what is predictable, then that'll, that'll create, you know, less, less inflation. Um, but for those that have never lived through this, this is a, uh, we're, we're in it and, and it's, and it's going to last a while. My prediction would be um, this will absolutely not slow down throughout 2022 and we'll be well into 23 before we're going to know if the fed was able to do it soft landing or if we're going to have something more like a crash landing or, or you know or a recession as a as a part of it right well that's a that's a balanced view so uh i respect that um so past 24 months we had covid we're going through a recession right now or inflation right now. We're going through geopolitical yep. risks. What keeps you optimistic in the midst of all these tectonic shifts in capital markets, in food and in labor and in inflation? Well, what keeps me optimistic is we live in, in my opinion, in the greatest country in the world. We have a great economy. Um, we have a ton of entrepreneurial spirit as a country, um, and we have a will to, you know, to be, um, to, su to succeed. And the American dream is real and, and it's going to continue to be real. And, and there's going to continue to be, um, millions of people that are going to chase it. And, and that's, that drives our economy and it drives our country and it's going to continue to be that way. And so it, it's why I'm optimistic and it's why I'm just an optimist in general is I'm lucky enough to be, you know, have, to have been born in this country and I'm lucky to, to be involved in, in the economy that we're in. And I'm lucky enough to be in the food space, which, as I said earlier, in my opinion, includes a lot of the greatest retailers and greatest companies that, you know, that exist uh, in this land. Great answer. I feel more optimistic already, Brandon. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on the Food Institute podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again, Brandon. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Good luck to you. And that brings us to a close for today's podcast. Once again, thanks to Brandon Barnholt of KHE for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the FI Retail 360 newsletter. We'll catch you next time. This is Brian Choi signing off. Music.